Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, December 20th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. The January 6th committee votes to refer Trump to the Department of Justice. Putin heads to Belarus as Russian drones again rock Kyiv. Pakistani Taliban militants seize a counter-terrorism center. The UK's Rwanda deportation plan is ruled lawful. Peru's president says she'll replace the prime minister in a cabinet shakeup. Sweden blocks the extradition of a Turkish journalist. North Korea said it has completed an important test of a spy satellite. Elon Musk puts his future as Twitter's CEO to a public vote. Epic Games reaches a record U.S. government settlement. The U.N. agrees to conserve 30% of the Earth's surface. And Argentina wins the World Cup. Our top story, the January 6th committee announces criminal referrals for Trump. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Newsweek, Fox News, MSNBC, NBC, and NPR Online News. In its final public meeting on Monday, the House committee investigating the January 6th Capitol riots voted to refer Trump to the Department of Justice on multiple charges over his alleged role in the events surrounding the 2020 election. Trump is the first president ever referred by Congress for potential criminal prosecution. The committee leaned heavily on courts to support its claims. This includes a series of legal rulings nationwide against Trump in the aftermath of the 2020 election. Charges in the referrals include obstructing an official proceeding of Congress, conspiracy to defraud the federal government, making a false statement, and inciting, assisting, or aiding and comforting an insurrection. The committee also referred several prominent GOP members to the House Ethics Committee, including Jim Jordan, Republican of Ohio, and Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California. Representative Adam Schiff, Democrat of California, a member of the committee, suggested that Trump's actions are a pretty good match for U.S. insurrection statutes. The referrals won't carry any legal weight, nor will they necessarily compel the DOJ to act. The committee is set to dissolve once Republicans take the majority in the next Congress starting in January. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. And during this podcast, we extract the spins from the facts. And this story has generated a couple of spins, beginning with a Democratic narrative coming from Vanity Fair. Trump and his inner circle must be held accountable for contributing to a reckless assault on democracy. No one is above the law, and the peaceful transfer of power is the bedrock of any democracy. GOP leaders instigated the attack on the U.S. Capitol and should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. And we have a Republican narrative from Breitbart. Democrats will stop at nothing to destroy their enemies, and the January 6th committee is just another way for them to achieve that goal. Democrats themselves have resisted certifying elections. This panel is a sham, and its members should be the ones investigated. Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now, back to the news. The war in Ukraine continues, and we look at day 299 as Putin heads to Belarus as Russian drones again rock Kyiv. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, Associated Press, Pravda, Ukraine Forum, TASS, and Al Jazeera. Russian President Vladimir Putin on Monday headed to Belarus for a, quote, working trip, sparking fears that he intends to pressure President Alexander Lukashenko 
to join his military campaign in Ukraine. Meanwhile, Russia again launched a wave of pre-daunt drone attacks on Kyiv. City officials said damage was inflicted in the districts of Solomyansky and Shevchenkivsky, and that an unspecified infrastructure facility was hit. There were no reports of civilian casualties. Kyiv's regional governor Oleksiy Kuliba also reported that infrastructure facilities, as well as residential buildings, were hit with drones in the wider region, injuring at least two civilians. A drone attack, as well as attacks from rockets and artillery, were also reported in the region of Dnipropetrovsk, while shelling was reported in Sumy, with no reports of civilian casualties in either region. However, Ukrainian officials reported that three civilians were killed and four more were injured in Russian attacks on the Donetsk region over the past day, while six civilians were reported injured in Kherson. One civilian was also reported injured in Kharkiv. In Ukrainian attacks, pro-Russia officials from the Donetsk People's Republic, or DPR, reported that one civilian was killed and four civilians were injured in territory it controls during the same time period. One civilian was reported killed and 10 more injured in Ukrainian attacks on the Russian city of Belgorod, in the border region of the same name. Elsewhere, again drawing the ire of Ukrainian officials, Henry Kissinger repeated suggestions that now was the time for a negotiated peace in Ukraine. Writing in The Spectator, Kissinger encouraged officials to, quote, build on the strategic changes which have already been accomplished and use them to seek a negotiated peace. All right, we've got some narrative spins on this story, Eric. Pravda brings us narrative A. Russia is undoubtedly planning to step up its attacks and widen its aggression against Ukraine in the new year. Due to the weakened state of Moscow's forces, Russia's military aims will necessitate greater involvement from the armed forces of Belarus. Institute for the Study of War gives us a narrative B for this story. The Belarusian president has repeatedly said he will not commit forces to fight in Ukraine and, even if reinforced by Belarus, Russia lacks the capability to plan and execute a large-scale military offensive in the coming months. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 7% chance that Russian or Belarusian troops will cross the land border between Belarus and either the Volyn or Rivna oblasts by 2023. Violence in Pakistan as militants seize a counterterrorism center. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The Tribune, Dawn, and The Guardian. Roughly 20 Tariq-e-Taliban Pakistan, or TTP, militants seized a government counterterrorism facility in the northwestern Banu district late on Sunday and are holding several security officials hostage, reportedly demanding safe passage to Afghanistan. The militants allegedly snatched guns from police officers while being interrogated at the detention center and later took the entire staff hostage, with the TTP claiming responsibility for the incident. The situation has remained tense through Monday as no breakthrough has been achieved in talks between Pakistan's government and the militants. Internet and cell phone services were suspended in the area, while authorities urge residents to stay indoors. Few other details have emerged so far, though Pakistani officials have confirmed that one counterterrorism officer was killed during the militants' takeover of the detention center and estimate that there could be up to 10 hostages. The incident comes a day after the TTP, which associates itself with the Afghanistan Taliban, claimed the killings of four policemen in a nearby district and is the latest in a years-long battle between the government and the militant group since it first emerged in 2007. 
In late November, the TTP unilaterally called off a five-month-long truce with the Pakistan government, which had been brokered by Afghanistan's Taliban, ordering its fighters to restart attacks. Thank you, Scott. The diplomat gives us a pro-establishment narrative on this story. The TTP's growing aggression, coupled with the Afghan Taliban's continued stance of looking the other way, is proof that Pakistan needs to ramp up its military operations. Not only must Islamabad target militants nationwide, but it could justifiably take the fight to Afghanistan in a coordinated military effort with regional allies. And the Friday Times gives us the establishment critical narrative. Pakistan's continuous cycle of trying to co-opt, sponsor, or defeat the TTP has only led to continual armed conflict. Even if Pakistan successfully blames Afghanistan for supporting the group, it won't change the fact that the TTP blames Pakistan for targeting its members domestically. Pakistan's focus must be on fighting an ideological war and encouraging Afghanistan to welcome the TTP onto its side of the border to prevent future conflict. And our friends at the Metaculous Prediction community gives us a nerd narrative on this story. There's an 88% chance that Pakistan will recognize the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan before 2030. I feel like there have been less hostage situations in the last decade or so because movies have kind of moved away from that kind of situation, that dog day afternoon type situation. What are you talking about? You and I both are being held hostage right this minute. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, dude. They're going to let us out. Okay. News coming from the United Kingdom. The Rwanda deportation plan has been ruled lawful. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Sky News, Reuters, African News, Telegraph India, and New Times. After being blocked in June by the European Court of Human Rights, or ECHR, the UK's controversial plan to deport migrants to Rwanda was ruled legal on Monday by London's High Court. The policy, announced in April, will send tens of thousands of migrants to the African nation. Lord Justice Lewis stated that the program was, quote, consistent with refugee convention but added that the cases of the first few asylum seekers set for deportation needed to be reconsidered by Home Secretary Suella Braverman before flights take off. The deal with Rwanda made by former Prime Minister Boris Johnson's government is aimed at deterring migrants who journey to the UK via small boats and forces migrants to pursue their asylum claims in Rwanda. Despite the ECHR's injunction, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's government retained the Conservative Party's goal of implementing the program. In return for Rwanda processing the asylum claims, the UK says it will invest £120 million, or $127 million, into the economic development and growth of the Central African country, as well as funding for asylum operations, accommodation, and integration similar to that incurred by Britain for such services. While Labour Party and Liberal Democrats have denounced the program, Kigali welcomed the UK High Court's ruling, calling the deal Rwanda's contribution to providing both innovative and long-term solutions to tackling the global migration crisis. The government's attempts to deter illegal immigration come as the UK has faced a record of over 40,000 migrants this year from France, many of whom originally journeyed from war-torn Afghanistan and Iran, among others. Thanks for those facts, Eric. We have a left narrative spin from Amnesty International. This latest ruling not only wrongly interprets international refugee law and ignores migrants' rights to seek protection in the UK, but it approves a deal to send vulnerable people to a nation with its own asylum and human rights violations. British taxes will now be wasted on a cruel, 
expensive, and devastatingly ineffective deportation scheme. This is a damaging distraction from truly combating criminal gangs. And the right narrative coming from Spectator. This program offers a real chance to end a crisis that many Britons on the left and right have grown to agree on. Since migrants likely won't want to pay thousands of pounds just for a trip, just to be sent back later, the Rwandan deal could not only see successful deportations now, but a stoppage in the future attempts to enter the UK illegally. And a political shakeup in Peru as the president is set to replace the prime minister. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Bloomberg Linea, Al Jazeera, The New York Times, and UPI. On Sunday, Peruvian President Dina Boluarte said she will replace the transitional government's prime minister as part of a cabinet reshuffle amid political unrest and widespread protests following the recent ouster of her predecessor, Pedro Castillo. She said that Prime Minister Pedro Angulo and other officials were being removed to build a political team to help with dialogue in the country ahead of a congressional debate on Tuesday over whether to bring elections forward to 2023. On Saturday, Bulwarte reportedly called on Congress to authorize early elections consistent with the demands of the Peruvian people. Earlier, Washington said it looked forward to working with Bulwarte and called on Lima to uphold common goals and values. Angulo had been named prime minister when Peru's first female president appointed her cabinet last week following the December 7th impeachment of leftist leader Castillo after he attempted to dissolve the legislature and announced he would rule by decree. Since then, Castillo has been detained and protests have rocked the South American country. Last week, Peru's defense minister imposed a 30-day nationwide state of emergency amid the unrest. Peruvian authorities on Friday updated the death toll from protests to 22, as two demonstrators reportedly died in clashes with police in central Peru, with Education Minister Patricia Correa and Culture Minister Yair Perez resigning due to the escalating death count. Those were the facts, and we do have two spins, beginning with a pro-establishment narrative coming from Washington Post. The fact that Peru has already had six presidents since 2016 speaks volumes about the country's political situation and underscores what a difficult legacy Boarty is taking on. Therefore, it's a positive sign that the coup attempt by the ultra-leftist and corrupt Castillo failed thanks to the resilience of Peruvians. If Boarty now succeeds in forming a strong government and implementing structural reforms, there's reason for optimism for Peruvian democracy. And there's an establishment critical narrative from foreign policy. The ongoing protests highlight that the justified ouster of the unpopular Castillo is by no means the end of the ongoing political crisis in Peru. Poor Peruvians have legitimate doubts that the dysfunctional democratic system will change anything about their desperate situation. That's why snap elections would likely benefit populist candidates. Given these challenges, it's uncertain whether Buarte will manage to keep Peru from becoming ungovernable. In our next story, Sweden blocks a Turkish journalist's extradition. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, DW, Guardian, Middle East Monitor, and France 24. Sweden's Supreme Court on Monday blocked the extradition of Bulent Keynes, an exiled Turkish journalist and former editor-in-chief of the Zaman newspaper, which has been one of Ankara's key demands before ratifying Sweden's NATO membership. The court said there were several hindrances to the extradition of Keynes, including the fact that some of the accusations against him aren't crimes in Sweden, as well as his refugee status and the political nature of his case. 
In the court's ruling, Judge Peter Asp stated that, quote, there is also a risk of persecution based on this person's political beliefs. An extradition can thusly not take place. Zaman was banned by Turkish authorities after the government accused it and Keynes of participating in the 2016 attempted coup against President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Keynes went into exile and began working for the Stockholm Center for Freedom, founded by other exiled Turkish dissidents. Erdogan has explicitly named Keynes as a suspected terrorist. Ankara has increased the number of people it wants to be extradited over time, beginning at 33, then 45, then 73, in unofficial lists published by media close to the Turkish government. Stockholm has repeatedly stressed that its judiciary has the final say in extraditions and that the government doesn't have the power to override the decision. Thanks, Eric. We have a pro-establishment narrative from the Stockholm Center for Freedom. Sweden cannot call itself a democracy if it capitulates to the demands of a dictator. Erdogan's rule in Turkey has quickly changed the country from a thriving democracy in the Middle East to another authoritarian regional state. The only thing Keynes is guilty of is not towing Erdogan's line. The court has made the right decision. And the establishment critical narrative comes from Daily Sabah. Keynes is directly associated with the terrorist Gulen movement, and Sweden must pursue justice and have him extradited to Turkey. The Turkish armed forces are the largest military in NATO outside of the U.S., and its demands shouldn't be taken lightly. Sweden cannot be allowed to turn a blind eye to terrorism while also expecting to be able to join NATO without any concessions. And now we turn to the Far East as North Korea completes an important test of a spy satellite. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Voices of America, ABC News, Associated Press, Reuters, Al Jazeera, and France 24. North Korean state media on Monday reported that it had conducted an important final phase test in the development of a military reconnaissance satellite. The country plans to have the satellite completed by April of 2023. This follows reports from South Korea and Japan that the North has launched two intermediate-range ballistic missiles toward its east coast. According to analysts, developing such a satellite would provide North Korea with cover for testing banned intercontinental ballistic missiles, as they share similar technology. Pyongyang's National Aerospace Development Administration reportedly conducted the launch via mock satellite, including a 20-meter resolution full-color camera, two multi-spectra cameras, image transmitters and receivers, a control device, and a storage battery that were fired at the so-called lofted angle of 500 kilometers, or 311 miles. Pyongyang said it took photos of South Korean cities as a part of its effort to develop its first military spy satellite. Along with pictures of the launch, the Korean Central News Agency, or KCNA, posted a pair of low-resolution black-and-white images of Seoul and Incheon. The resolution of the images released isn't notably impressive for the purposes of military reconnaissance, but will likely be an ongoing development with more improvements over time, said Sue Kim, security analyst at the California-based RAND Corporation. A photo analysis of Pyongyang's recent missile launch shows that they were likely a new type of liquid-fueled weapon, capable of being used for military purposes, as well as of sending a satellite into orbit. Thank you, Scott. Red State gives us the first spin, and it's a Republican narrative. You can't blame Kim Jong-un for flexing North Korea's military muscle when Biden is recklessly saber-rattling with Taiwan and China. How does he know the U.S. won't also team up with South Korea for an invasion of the North? 
Trump's relationship with and policies towards North Korea maintain stability in the Korean Peninsula. We also have a Democratic narrative by way of MSNBC. Kim Jong-un's geopolitical actions have been erratic and his missile launches are destabilizing the peninsula. Instead of provoking a confrontation, the leader should take the Biden administration up on its offer to meet without preconditions and settle any grievances peacefully. Biden is showing strength and prudence in the region. And we have a nerd narrative for this story as well, coming from the Metaculous Prediction community. It says there is a 36% chance that if there's an offensive detonation anywhere by the year 2050, there will be at least one resulting fatality in North Korea. Elon Musk making the news again as Twitter users vote for him to step down as CEO. And here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, CNBC, Independent, Financial Times, CNN, and Sky News. Twitter users have voted in favor of Elon Musk stepping down as the social media platform's chief executive after the billionaire tweeted a poll on his future and said he would abide by the result. The poll ended on Monday with 57.5% voting for Musk to leave his role. More than 17 million users voted in the poll, but the vote is informal and it's unclear what Musk's next steps will be. In response to the poll, Musk tweeted, quote, as the saying goes, be careful what you wish, as you might get it. Musk previously claimed nobody wanted the job as Twitter's CEO who could actually keep Twitter alive. Musk, who is also CEO of Tesla and SpaceX, previously signaled he would eventually give up the Twitter position. Musk told a Delaware judge in November he planned to reduce his time at Twitter and, quote, find somebody else to run Twitter over time. Tesla shares, which had sunk 11% over the past month, increased by 5% in pre-market trading after the poll result was revealed. Twitter could potentially be on pace to lose $4 billion a year, confirming Musk's claims that the platform's finances are dire. Musk acquired Twitter for $44 billion in October, promising to improve free speech and eliminate fake accounts. If Musk steps down, it's unclear who would replace him. All right. Thanks, Eric, for those facts on this tech story. We have a narrative A from The Guardian. As the majority owner of a privately held company, no one can force Musk out. However, after his consistent run of baffling decisions, even some of the billionaire's closest backers are beginning to have enough. Since installing himself as CEO just 50 days ago, Musk has only created chaos in his time with the company and should pass the baton. Washington Examiner gives us narrative B. Since buying Twitter, Musk has been extremely erratic in his decision-making, and it's unclear whether the billionaire is being strategic in order to generate interest in Twitter or if his moves are completely ad hoc. It's not out of the question that his moves are calculated to unnerve the banks in order for Musk to buy back his Twitter debt at reduced rates. And we have an appropriately named nerd narrative on this story as well. This one says there's a 3% chance that Elon Musk will hold major political office in the U.S. before February of 2033. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. I think you should apply for the job as CEO, Scott. I think you'd be great. I'll, I'll, you know, if they offered it to me, I would listen. I would listen. I'm not, you know. <laughs> you would I'm entertain gonna, that, huh? <laughs> I would, yeah. I wouldn't hang up the phone immediately. You know, okay. that's what I say. Yeah. All right. Epic Games to pay a record U.S. government settlement. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, CNN, New York Times, and Reuters. The U.S. Federal Trade Commission, or FTC, on Monday announced that Epic Games, creator of the popular game Fortnite, 
has agreed to pay a record $520 million settlement over privacy violations related to minors. Epic will pay a record $275 million to settle FTC accusations of violations against the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. The FTC alleged Epic collected personal information from children younger than 13 who played Fortnite and made it difficult for children and their parents to get that data deleted. Epic will pay $245 million to settle a second complaint over consumers who claimed user interface design choices, which the FTC described as deceptive, hurt them. That settlement will be paid out as refunds to users. The FTC alleged that Epic caused substantial injury to children when it enabled live voice and text chats by default and matched minors with adults on Fortnite teams. This allegedly led to bullying and harassment in some cases. Fortnite has at least 400 million users around the world and made $3.7 billion in 2019 for Epic, which is valued at $32 billion by the Wall Street Journal. Epic neither explicitly confirmed nor denied the allegations as part of its settlement. Those were the facts, and we have a couple of spins. TechCrunch gives us a pro-establishment narrative. Even before agreeing to this settlement, Epic had been taking steps to protect children playing its games including creating new options related to purchases and replenishments of accounts. The company has also created, quote, cabined accounts, which automatically disables features, including chat and purchasing for underage players. When it comes to consumer protection, Epic's intention is to be a leader. And Vox brings us this establishment critical narrative. Epic might be doing the right things now, but for years it violated FTC statutes. This settlement shows the agency means business regarding protecting children from online privacy and questionable behavior. This should serve as a warning shot for other businesses that commit similar violations. The FTC should continue to crack down, and the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act should be revised and enhanced. I played a little Fortnite a tad in my day, and I mainly get bullied by the little kids. <laughs> They're brutal. So I, too, would like to separate the kids from the adults, but for my own purposes, I'm the one in danger. In our next story, a U.N. agreement inches towards conserving 30% of the Earth's area. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, New York Times, Guardian, Al Jazeera, South China Morning Post, and NPR Online News. On Monday, delegates at the UN's COP15 Biodiversity Summit, which has been characterized as a last chance for nature's recovery, struck a landmark agreement and pledged to protect nearly a third of the planet's area by the year 2030. The most prominent part of the agreement, known as 30 by 30, calls for a coordinated effort to designate 30% of Earth's land and ocean area as protected areas by 2030. About 17% of the planet's land and 8% of its oceans are currently protected from fishing, farming, and industrial activities. The platform agreed upon includes safeguarding the rights of indigenous communities, cutting global food waste in half, and protecting vital ecosystems such as wetlands, grasslands, and coral reefs. In addition, the developed countries agreed to work towards increasing financial aid to the developing countries and contribute at least $20 billion per year by 2025, rising to $30 billion per year by 2030. However, the framework still needs to be agreed upon by the 196 signatories to the Convention on Biological Diversity before it is finalized. The pact comes as biodiversity declines worldwide at alarming rates. Up to 1 million of the estimated 8 million plant and animal species face extinction in the coming decades. Thanks, Eric. We have a narrative A on this story from Global Citizen. 
The framework has come just in time. This agreement to protect 30% of Earth's lands, rivers, lakes, and wetlands is a step in the right direction. It can prevent mass extinctions, bolster resilience to climate change, safeguard marine ecosystems, and allow humanity to transition towards a nature-positive world. Thank you, Scott. Narrative B comes from nature. It's unlikely that this will be fully implemented, as shown by past UN treaties. The agreement could be undermined by its failure to mobilize the promised resources as the financial commitments, including the pledge to increase overall biodiversity financing to $200 billion a year from all sources, are not legally binding. Also, the U.S. is not a party to the Convention on Biological Diversity. We've got a nerd narrative on this story, too. This one says there's a 32% chance that the European Union will achieve its 2030 Paris Climate Agreement goals, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Our final story, Argentina defeats France in the World Cup Final. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, Yahoo Sports, and The Guardian. On Sunday in what has widely been described as the greatest World Cup final of all time, Argentina defeated France to win soccer's greatest prize for the third time in the country's history. In Qatar's Lucille Stadium, Argentina's Lionel Messi gave his team the lead after a 23rd-minute penalty and was shortly followed by Angel Di Maria, who slotted in a 36th-minute goal, giving the Argentines a 2-0 advantage going into halftime. France, the defending champions, looked out of the game until their respective superstar, Kylian Mbappe, also scored from the penalty spot in the 80th minute and hit the back of the net again less than two minutes later, forcing extra time with the score tied at 2-all. Messi, widely regarded as the world's greatest player, again put his team ahead, but was again rebuffed by Mbappe, making him only the second player in history to score a hat trick in a World Cup final after England's Jeff Hurst in 1966. As the game headed to a penalty shootout, both Messi and Mbappe scored their team's first attempts. But after Kingsley Coman and Arulian Tremaini both missed for France, Argentino's Gonzalo Montier sealed the victory for his team with a 4-2 lead in penalties. Before Argentina raised the iconic 18-carat World Cup trophy, their goalkeeper, Emiliano Martinez, was awarded the Golden Gloves Award, while their midfielder, Enzo Fernandez, won the Young Player Award. Messi walked away with the golden ball for the best player, while Mbappe secured the golden boot for most goals scored. Thank you, Scott. We have Narrative A coming from New York Times. In spite of the criticism and scandal, Qatar got what it wanted, an exhilarating World Cup watched by millions. The icing on the cake was watching superstar Messi finally lift the World Cup trophy, a dream he has no doubt sought since first kicking a soccer ball. And Narrative B comes from The Express. This was nearly a perfect tournament, but that's exactly the problem. Once the game started, all concerns about corruption, migrant deaths, and the persecution of the LGBTQ community were quickly forgotten. Unfortunately, it demonstrates that so-called sports washing works. I had no idea there were so many different trophies handed out for yeah, this sport. <laughs> Jeez. I mean, everything gets a trophy. Yeah, I got strep throat explaining all the all the trophies they gave out. Yeah. Jeez. I should get a trophy. You should. Exactly. The golden microphone trophy goes to Scott Wallace. I'll humbly accept it. (laughs) 
Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, December 20th, 2022. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Want more information on Improve the News? Visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Thank you.